Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On the Bechdel cast, the questions asked if movies have women in them. Are all their discussions just boyfriends and husbands, or do they have individualism? The patriarchy's effing vast. Start changing it with the Bechdel cast. How does the song start? I could stay awake just to hear you dream Oh, <laughs> Or something like that. Why is when dreaming? I could spend my life <laughs> in this sweet surrender. <laughs> I just scared my cat. I could stay lost in this moment forever. Wouldn't you sing about your daughter like that? Um. If you saw raw, silent footage of Ben Affleck shoving a graham cracker down your daughter's pants, <laughs> wouldn't you write that song too? Because <laughs> everything with you is a moment of treasure. Including the graham cracker thing. I don't, don't want to close my eyes. Okay. Twisted. Is this Twisted. a father singing a song about his daughter? Or is this a man singing a song about a woman he's in love with? Look, my mom and I have really discussed this over the years and come to the conclusion uh-huh. that... It can be read either way. If you don't have the context of Armageddon, sure. I don't want to close my eyes. I don't want to fall asleep because I miss you, babe, and I don't want to miss a thing. can be described to describe how you feel about how much you love your child. You don't want to miss a moment sure, sure. of their childhood. You love them so much. Yeah. Also, personal history between Steven Tyler and Liv Tyler, yeah. she didn't know that she was his daughter, and I believe he didn't know either until she was like 11 or 12. So he missed a large portion of her oh. childhood. So it perhaps even makes sense that he didn't want to miss a thing. He'd already missed so many things. 11 years worth. I know. Damn. God. The Liv Tyler paternity story, it lives on with our greatest roller coaster band, 
Aerosmith. <laughs> have you ever been on the Aerosmith roller coaster? I have not, but I've heard you tell of it many times. I won't shut up about it because it's <laughs> so shocking to me that they haven't like changed the band. <laughs> it's like, but I, but they can't. Where is this at again? It's at Disney World. Oh, it's at Disney World. <laughs> it's called the Rock and Roller Coaster. My parents and I like made a well my mom my dad thinks Aerosmith is corny and for losers because he's a punk yeah. right but <laughs> my mom opposite of a punk and so when the first time we went to Disney World when I was like 13 it was a big deal for her she doesn't like going on roller coasters but she loves Aerosmith so much okay, and she's like even yeah. though the roller coaster goes upside down I'm gonna go on it because I love Steven Tyler and <laughs> the thing is about the rock and roller coaster, I would love to know more about the history of it mm -hmm. because it is so themed around the band and the lore of the band Aerosmith that it would actually be kind of challenging to retheme. Like it's, mm. it's so specific. I don't know how they pulled it off. Wow. But I'm sure there's a very long YouTube video I could watch and find out. <laughs> sure. It's an awesome roller coaster. Okay. It's like Steven Tyler in a in the video you watch in the line and he's like, Come on guys, we're gonna be late to the recording studio and you're like Yeah, exactly. Well, anyways, I don't think this song plays in the roller coaster because it's kind of slow um, but it would be funny it should it could be one of those like lazy river ride songs the aerosmith lazy river <laughs> is kind of a cruel diabolical idea uh, disagree. do you know how many have you ever read studies about how much human shit ends up in the lazy river Ew, no and i don't want to know never go in a lazy river shit i would i feel confident that there's a lot of piss in there but People poop in those? Definitely. I mean, the piss goes without saying. There is some <laughs> physical... I read about it once. Ugh, I'm sorry. I'm a, I, I'm a scientist about as much as Bruce Willis is in Armageddon. Like, <laughs> I read about it once, uh -huh. and there is some sort of physical effect that, like, a lazy river has on you that, like, loosens up that butthole. It makes it easy oh. to just... <laughs> <laughs> right out. Right out. Oh, horrible. What's the name of this show? This is <laughs> <laughs> This is the Bechtel cast and I'm Caitlin Durante. Right. Who are you, Jamie? And I'm ja I'm thank you for the reminder. Uh, I'm Jamie Loftus. And this is our show um, where we take a look at your favorite movies or, you know, impactful, one could say deep impactful movies. Whoa. And uh, we are bringing a disaster movie to you today. We're bringing Armageddon, 1998, mm. directed by Michael Bay. Mm. Because Caitlin and I were looking at genres we haven't covered in many moons. And action and disaster have been kind of, you know, few and far between recently. So we chose mm -hmm. the biggest, goofiest one we get requests for. Yeah. And we're going to analyze it from an intersectional feminist lens. And I'm sure it's going to do great. Um <laughs> What's the metric we use as a jumping oh, off point gosh. for discussion, Caitlin? It's the Bechtel cast. Nope, that's the name of the show. Let me try again. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. It's the Bechtel test, which is a media metric created by queer cartoonist Alison Bechtel, sometimes called mm -hmm. the Bechtel Wallace test. Mm -hmm. She included it in her comic, mm -hmm. Dykes to Watch Out For, from 1985, originally just as a kind of one off joke which has since been used as the 
media metric that we now know and love, Mm -hmm. which requires our version, there are many versions, but ours requires that there be two characters of a marginalized gender who have names, Mm -hmm. who speak to each other, and whose conversation is about something other than a man. And for our purposes, we like it when it's a meaty conversation, maybe one the size of Texas even. God. And you know, this movie has a lot of words in it, but <laughs> words spoken between women don't be ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Don't, you're, yeah, right. Oh, you silly Billy. What do you have? Space dementia? You'd have to have <laughs> space dementia to oh. think that this movie would pass the Bechdel test. But nevertheless, it made half a billion dollars and a lot of people still really like this movie. It's true. And I will say it is 100% Aerosmith got my mom in the theaters, but she loved this movie oh wait okay so let's so um jamie what is your relationship and your mom's relationship more importantly what's relationship (laughs) yeah um i don't have a huge relationship with armageddon i have a huge relationship with the tyler family Mm. more so steven to be honest because uh aerosmith they're a boston band we're very proud Mm. of them Mm -hmm. and well you know but not the boston punks and that's where my dad comes in sure but i you know i grew up around aerosmith uh posters and Mm -hmm. music so my mom my mom loved this movie i remember that we owned it on VHS Mm -hmm. and I remember being too young to watch it and that it was really long and that I in spite of saying for a couple years that I wanted to be an astronaut I think I said it because it sounded good because I was stunningly disinterested in space Um, (laughs) I didn't really want to watch any space movies I remember my mom being like you can't watch Armageddon you could watch Apollo 13 and I was like Mm -hmm. I would I would really not want to do that (laughs) sounds sounds boring apollo 13 is actually a pretty solid movie but anyway i know that's the tom hanks one yeah. i also haven't seen deep impact i hadn't seen contact until we watched it and i quite liked right. it yeah yeah i'm more interested in space now getting defensive <laughs> i saw cl- i saw different chunks of it growing up but i never really took the initiative to watch it all the way through mm-hmm. Um, so this was my first time watching it all the way through. Wow. Oh, and I remember when the Arme- when the Ben Affleck commentary track leaked a couple years back because that was a treat. Mm. More more kind of Boston canon uh, present here. Sure, but um, yeah, I'd never seen it all the way through before. I was preparing for this episode, and wow, wow, wow! <laughs> uh-huh. I will say, I think Michael Bay wanted me to laugh and cry. I mm. did laugh. Mm-hmm. I didn't cry. I, I, mean, I didn't cry. Even when no. the movie said so, I didn't cry. Because when <laughs> someone was dying, I'm like, I don't know who that is. You oh. cut to them and away from them so quickly that I didn't catch who you passed away. You mean the scene? And then I looked, <laughs> where I looked the... at it and I was like, oh, I guess he's gone. You mean the scene where they're like, we lost Gruber. And, you're like, and oh everyone's God, like, who, who the Gruber? fuck is Gruber? Are we supposed to care about Gruber? We haven't even met him yet. And I thought it was kind of bizarre that they, I mean, because Bruce Willis was always going to be in this movie, even when it was being written. I'm like, why Bruce Willis, It there's already a Gruber associated with him. Hans Gruber. Hans Gruber. You're going to put another right. Gruber in a Bruce Willis movie? Bad idea. I still don't know who Gruber is. I'll be honest. This mm. movie was cutting back. I mean, I think that that was like, I, I learned that that was a huge criticism of it at the time too, where it was cut so quickly that it's like, it kind of gives you a headache and it's oh, hard to tell. The editing. 
Yeah, because the pace, I mean, even Michael Bay has admitted that <laughs> the movie was edited very mm. quickly and that his visual effects <laughs> supervisor a had nervous a mental breakdown. breakdown. <laughs> He gave no more information than that, which mm-hmm. is kind of a funny way about how like, Michael Bay talks. He'll say something horrific and then just like start another sentence. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there were characters that I assumed had died in the like there's a point in the movie where you lose a couple yeah. characters. And I was like, oh, I haven't seen, quote unquote, the woman in a while. I guess yeah. that she died, but but she didn't. She just disappeared for 35 minutes. <laughs> True. But I guess she was there and fine. Yeah. What's your history with this movie, Caitlin? I had seen it before a couple times. Uh, This movie came out when I was 12. So I was among the many tween girls of the time where watching this movie was like a rite of passage. Really? I mean, it was like... I didn't realize it was one of those. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. At least among my, my friend group. I believe you. I just didn't know. Oh, yeah. You watched it sleepovers. If you had like a boy-girl hang, if someone's like mom would let you like have girls and boys over, then you'd watch this because it's horny and Ben Affleck puts an animal cracker on Liv Tyler's boobs. And Would people get all tense during that? Probably, I don't know. It was so many decades Whoa. ago. I barely remember. Kids are so <laughs> twisted. Um, but I do remember the kids crying during the sacrificial Bruce Willis scene. Yes. Because she does say daddy. She really does. Um, and, the so- and the Aerosmith song played at every school dance from 1998 sure. to... I mean, probably even after I graduated high school, which was 04, mm-hmm. it was like the slow song. If the Armageddon song came on, you better fucking find yourself a hetero dance partner and slow dance f- your night away. I feel like it still gets like pretty decent wedding play to this day. Sure. And it is my maybe like number two go to karaoke song because this song slaps as a karaoke song. It's hot tip for everybody. Can I shout out the composer of this song? She's kind of an icon. Um, She's an interest or at least an interesting character. She's also like a boomer woman who occasionally tweets and her tweets are not like offensive, but they are inscrutable in a way that people seem to find (laughs) worthy of discussion anyways her name is diane warren Mm -hmm. she i believe she eventually won but she's like she's like a famous songwriter and composer um who for a very okay so for a very very long time she's been like nominated for the academy award for best original song including Mm -hmm. this one uh one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve 13 times whoa never won huh and then they gave her an honorary award last year i think because they were like oh my god we got to give diane something we keep snubbing her she's written like a lot of iconic songs well shouts this one might be the most famous but she also no well she did if i could turn back time by share oh yeah because you loved me celine dion she's kind of in charge of weddings hmm. um how do i live without you leanne rhymes Ooh. rhythm of the night mm. i mean she's those are some bangers she's got bops she's got hits yeah but i mean i don't want to miss a thing it's right up there so then we have to extend the lore because i didn't realize steven tyler didn't write that song mm. is diane warren is it a coincidence 
or is Diane Warren writing how she thinks Steven Tyler feels oh. when he thinks about not being around for Liv Tyler's childhood? Hard to say. Hard to say. Hard to say. Point is, I did see this movie a couple times as a youth, but I never liked it because you know why? Mm-hmm. If there's going to be a disaster movie that I'm going to watch a lot mm-hmm. during this time frame of the late 90s, it's going to be Titanic. I was too busy watching Titanic every day to care about Armageddon. So It's true. And this movie is clearly trying to, you know, pull from the Titanic playbook Ooh. a bit. Pearl Harbor even more. <laughs> Michael Bay saw Titanic and he's like, shit, I have to do that. And then <laughs> no. he did a fucking terrible job. Oh, But he I really mean, did try kind of to his... replicate Titanic with Pearl Harbor. And he mentions he mentions in one of these interviews he gives retrospectively, mm-hmm. um, I believe it's the 2013 interview where he apologizes for making the movie. Um, <laughs> but then later he's like, I was misquoted. I didn't mean it. I do think he was misquoted because I read mm-hmm. the full interview and it, did, it was a very clicky title. Sure. It was like he didn't apologize. He just contextualized why the third act is really sloppy which it is (laughs) yeah but he mentions james cameron in that interview he says Mm -hmm. i called james cameron and asked what do you do when you're doing all the effects yourself but the movie did fine so he's (laughs) sort of also admitting that the effects look kind of like baffling and 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 shitty they're shitty it's pretty shitty no doubt about it oh he i know there's no fire in space but it is a movie and most people don't know that (laughs) He's a bad man, but that is iconic. That's, that's funny. <laughs> and it's true. I honestly, I didn't read the highlight reel from the Armageddon commentary soundtrack, which goes viral every so often mm. because it is like very ridiculous. Oh, I have some quotes that I am prepared to share when the time comes. I Yeah. I mean, there, there was a great roundup on The Ringer about it. Mm. But I, I will say that I watched the whole movie before going through that and it did not ping for me once that there was a fire in space i didn't think about it Mm. because i'm a popcorn girl which i I don't know i I have no idea we're not scientists no famously not in stem we won't even read a book like (laughs) be serious (laughs) um all right should we get into it let's get into it let's Take a break first, though. Oh, okay. Really (laughs) gear up for this. All right, we'll be right back. Okay. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Mini Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Okay. Caitlin, what the hell happens in the movie Armageddon? I actually do think I need a few things. Um, I needed a few blanks filled. Sure. Because... I honestly, until the credits scene where Liv Tyler has the picture of the four characters who died at her wedding, I was not 100% who made it. <laughs> I knew Bruce Willis died. Sure, sure. But I, a few of the guys have the same haircut. Uh-huh. I thought the guy that was banned from seeing his son died. And I was like, well, mm, no, nope. but then he, he, d- he didn't. He lived and, and continued to blow off the court order that he couldn't see his son. Right. And we were cheer and we were cheering. <laughs> so I actually don't really know who died. All right. Well, I will tell you. Mm. Uh, okay. So we begin with voiceover from, I think Charlton Heston is what I saw in the credits. Oh. If I'm remembering correctly. Well, that's talk about a talk about a bad person. <laughs> Seriously. Like an iconically bad person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He is describing a huge meteor or meteorite or asteroid. I don't know the difference and I didn't look it up. But one of those things <laughs> hit the earth millions of years ago and caused the mass extinction of the dinosaurs. And they're like, and it'll probably happen again. It's just a matter of when. It's so dramatic and also completely unnecessary. And that's how you know you just started watching a Michael Bay movie. <laughs> right. Exposition that, need that to be there, need. And I bet it cost a million dollars to do for <laughs> right. no reason. Okay. So then we cut to present day, aka 1998. We are in space. Ever heard of it? Woohoo! Suddenly, a meteor shower strikes and blows up a space shuttle. Mm-hmm. And then New York City gets pummeled by these meteors or meteorites or asteroids. Again, did you, did you know? Simply don't know. There's like a dog in the New York scene. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, whatever happened with the dog, which I think the dog just like bites a Godzilla toy. 
Yes. That cost $20,000. What? I, that's what Michael Bay said in the why? commentary. He's Well, he's not going to tell you why. He's just going to tell you it cost $20,000. He oh also says gosh. Ben Affleck's, oh, okay. Ben Hang Affleck's on. teeth yeah. cost $20,000. Yes. This is a movie, much like an angel gets, gets its wings. <laughs> an actor gets their teeth when Jerry Bruckheimer and Michael Bay say, I hate looking at your mouth. It looks disgusting from an up angle, uh-huh. according to me. He keeps saying in the commentary and in other interviews that Ben Affleck had these little baby teeth. Yes. And you know Jerry Bruckheimer. We've talked about it on the show for years, for the better part of a decade at this point. Mm -hmm. We talk about if you're in a Jerry Bruckheimer movie and you're going to get a close-up, guess what, babe? You need a new set of chompers. You're going to get new teeth and they're going to be big. Uh They're going to be about a foot tall. They're going to be all the same length. Yes. We're going to be blindingly white. Mm-hmm. And so Ben Affleck got his teeth for this one. And he they did. sent him to Tom Cruise's teeth guy. Oh, sure. Yeah. That tracks. Yeah. Michael Bay says in the interview that he, that Jerry Bruckheimer had worked on a quote unquote plane movie, which is how he described Top Gun, which is weird. Oh. <laughs> he said Bruckheimer had worked on a, or said Jerry had worked on a plane movie. When Michael Bay talks about, Jerry Bruckheimer, it does sound like Seinfeld episode descriptions <laughs> because of how he talks. He kind of talks like Jason Alexander does in Seinfeld. Mm-hmm. And he's always talking about a guy named Jerry who's doing something um, weird. <laughs> right. So, so I told mm-hmm. Jerry, God, he's got those baby teeth, Jerry. I don't know what to do. <laughs> You're like, that sounds like Seinfeld. Okay. Yeah. Anyways. It's true. Okay, so the movie, what happens? We cut to various like government and military officials, such as the head of NASA, mm-hmm. this guy named Truman, played by Billy Bob Thornton. I love when he's serious. As well as General Kimsey, played by Keith David. Mm-hmm. There's also a guy with a huge telescope named Carl, who is extremely verbally abusive to... His wife, his wife, oh. Dottie. Yeah, and but but it's a Michael Bay movie, so his verbal abuse is a joke. It's supposed to be funny. Yeah, yes. And everyone's like, "What is? What the hell is going on?" And soon they figure out that an asteroid the size of Texas is on a collision course to Earth. No matter where it hits, it will wipe out all of life as we know it, mm-hmm. and it will hit Earth in 18 days. Yeah. Cut to Harry Stamper. That's Bruce Willis. He is the owner of an oil rig. Cool. He discovers that one of his employees, AJ, that's Ben Affleck. And and his teeth. And his teeth. Credited have, separately. <laughs> yeah. The whole package has had sex with Harry's daughter, Grace, that's Liv Tyler, and he pulls out a gun and starts shooting at AJ on an oil rig. Okay, just a second. Yeah. It is very silly and action movie-y and testosterone Michael Bay choice Mm -hmm. to make Bruce Willis open fire on an oil rig that he owns Mm -hmm. to protect his daughter who he would absolutely kill along with everyone he knows if he shot (laughs) the wrong area of the oil rig which is most areas you really shouldn't shoot a gun on an oil rig true what i find more interesting and like a lot of what i thought was like 
interesting about watching this movie was like the very I don't know like Michael Bay does a lot of like hyper nationalistic imagery and ideas that he pushes Mm -hmm. in his movies and I don't think he wrote this I mean there's like 900 credited writers it's kind of like we don't really know who wrote this movie that's part of the mystery Mm -hmm. but I don't know just like thinking about how in 1998 it was very plausible to have the hero of your movie be the owner of an oil rig Mm. I don't think that that would happen at least in a way that would be mass appealing today because I like Bruce Willis's character is very much like a working class hero Mm -hmm. which is a part he plays very well Uh but the fact that they choose and that it's important to the plot that he is like not tycoon I guess but like he's certainly doing fine he owns a fucking oil rig like I mean I think he might be a tycoon because he's the best driller in the world so Ben Affleck has some thoughts on that I can't (laughs) wait to talk about it oh my gosh yes but no I I wrote down like the irony of these oil drillers saving the planet from an asteroid only to go back to Earth and absolutely destroy our planet via oil drilling. That's true. Like, that's what he has returned. I mean, I, I mean, I guess he doesn't return. But you is I mean, is Buscemi just going back on the oil rig? Also, mm. Buscemi's character, diabolical for a lot of reasons, because there's yeah. a lot of heavy, like they're insinuating that he is a child sex offender correct over and over as a joke which is i was not particularly surprised that this director had no issue with that but Mm. in any case on top of the nudge nudge wink wink about that Uh he's also there like they're like steve buscemi's character is a genius which means he knows better than to do what he's doing Uh right which is diabolically plunge the earth for its natural resources yeah so they save the world but they're gonna come back and kill it some more yeah thanks guys (laughs) it'll just take a little longer than an asteroid would they killed owen wilson that was bold it's too early he is one of the ones who die yes they got his ass yeah (laughs) Uh, okay so we meet harry aj and grace we cut back to, I don't know, they're at the Pentagon or something. All these officials <laughs> are trying to figure out what to do about this asteroid and how to save humanity. And they're like, well, we can't blow it up from the outside, but we can blow it up from the inside. Fun idea. If we drill into the asteroid and plant the nuclear weapons inside. Not as fun an idea. <laughs> yeah. So. And there, I guess, should we wait to share Ben Affleck's thoughts on this? Because he does point mm-hmm. out in the DVD commentary something that, I don't know, like it never occurred to you when you were a kid, right? Like it wouldn't have occurred to me. I guess maybe it would have occurred to me now, but I Ben, ben had already said it. I wonder if I had that thought even as a youth. I don't know. What Ben says on this infamous famous and infamous dvd audio commentary but it's the audio commentary for the criterion collection edition because this movie is in the criterion collection which so many people have pointed out what a bizarre choice that is because the criterion collection is usually like art house films forgotten classics you know stuff that's usually a little more obscure definitely not mainstream blockbusters like this what did but Michael Bay do to like? <laughs> I do not know. Jerry Bruckheimer promised the 
president of Criterion Collection new teeth if they put mm-hmm. Armageddon in the collection. They're like, come on. <laughs> right. So the commentary is, I think I have this right. It's Michael Bay, Jerry Bruckheimer, Bruce Willis, and Ben Affleck. Mm-hmm. Ben Affleck's portions are him like roasting the film. Apparently he's doing an extended parody of the film Sling Blade, which stars Billy Bob Thornton. He's also making Mm -hmm. silly sound effects during any elaborate stunt scenes. Which my favorite example is when he makes like a bunch of slurpy sounds when someone's going down the oil rig. And then Bruce Willis (laughs) is like, two stuntmen almost died making this scene. (laughs) So he's roasting it. And there's one part where he says... I asked Michael why it was easier to train oil drillers to become astronauts than it was to train astronauts to become oil drillers. And he told me to shut the fuck up. So that was the end of that talk. (laughs) I love, and he does a great Michael Bay impression. Maybe. I actually don't really know what Michael Bay sounds like. Mm, I would never listen to him. He makes him sound like a fucking creep. So I'm like, yeah, that's probably what he sounds like. Yeah. Oh, what does he say? He says... I was like, you mean it's a real plan at NASA to train oil drillers? And he was like, just shut your mouth. (laughs) It's great. Yes. So what happens in the movie is that NASA recruits the world's best driller, Harry Stamper, Bruce Willis, who is going to like train the team of astronauts. So originally he's going to train the team of astronauts to be drillers and to use a drill of Harry's patented design to drill into the asteroid, plant these nukes, take off, and then detonate the bomb from afar. Mm -hmm. And Harry's like, you you guys can't do it. I need to do it. And my team needs to be up there with me. And they say, okie (laughs) dokie. They're like, sounds great, Bruce. I'm not saying that oil drilling is easy. I know it's not. I disagree with it politically, but I know it's not an easy thing to do. But I think Ben Affleck is correct to point out that the reverse would be be much easier or Mm -hmm. just say no Bruce Willis go fuck yourself we're gonna have you know an even split you can't bring all of your weird friends to space but Billy Bob Thornton is like all right I guess you can bring all of your weird friends to space every last one but not your daughter for reasons unclear even though we're like oh she's so smart she's so capable but Mm. it's not even considered that she would Mm. be able to go no what happens next is what I found to be one of the most baffling scenes because Bruce Willis is like, I'm doing this and I'm doing it with my friends. So then the government goes around and starts rounding up the team, which is uh, Michael Clark Duncan. He Mm -hmm. plays a character named bear. Mm -hmm. Steve Buscemi is roundhouse or something. What's his name? Hound dog. I don't know. Rock hound. Um, Is that true? I think his name is rock hound. And then Liv Tyler is like, we call him that because he's a hound because he's horny. I thought, oh, that is what <laughs> the Steve Buscemi character. I know that we have somewhat retired the Buscemi test. However, the name of it, the name of it. Yeah. However, for this one episode, I feel like the idea of mm-hmm. the original term is pretty spot on correct where we'll, we'll talk about that later but i was yeah. like geez louise there was like that i think we've referenced it in, in every episode we've discussed michael bay but there's that oral history that came out in gq yes. years ago now and there's like I, f- I forget who it is um yeah it's billy bob thornton 
who mentions Steve Buscemi looking around the table read for this movie and saying, what the fuck are we doing here? (laughs) Which is fair. I just hope Mm -hmm. that they, I mean, I'm guessing that they, you know, were all able to to get get a a nice little house out of this and hopefully they don't Mm. think about it too much. Yeah. They tied Steve Buscemi up. They taped my boy up. (laughs) Well, he had space dementia, Jamie. But then like... (laughs) He didn't, right? Like, did he? I think he got over it pretty quickly. <laughs> I don't know. He sneezed. It was gone. <laughs> Unclear what was going I have just like, I don't know what is going on in for the entire last hour of this movie. Oh, my gosh. I also, but I apparently went on that's a, like, canon. <laughs> yeah. I went on an Instagram stories tirade about this movie, but mostly about how the third act of this movie, so... They start drilling on the asteroid, which is effectively the beginning of the third act. But when they start drilling, there are 50 minutes left of the movie, which means there's a 50 minute third act, which is absolutely obscene. That's so long for a third act. Mm -hmm. I can't fathom it. And yet it happened. Um, Okay, so... They're rounding up the team. It's all these guys. It's also Owen Wilson. It's AJ. That's Ben Affleck's character. In this, like, getting the team together montage. Mm -hmm. And here's what's baffling. They were all just on Harry's oil rig the day before. Basically, no time has passed since Harry was, like, recruited for this project. It doesn't make sense. But somehow these guys have dispersed all over the country. And the whole thing with this movie is, like, there's not enough time. There's only 18 days until the asteroids gonna hit the earth so like how did they have to also ben affleck has started his own oil drilling company in the interim in a single day yeah any questions what? <laughs> yeah any questions he's like i love that he's like even though ben affleck even in 1998 like with workers rights mm. you could ruin bruce willis's life if he shot you in the leg at work <laughs> Right. But he's like, ah, best move on and start my own oil company overnight. Uh, no one will shoot me in the leg. That's No one can shoot you if you own the business, mm. which I, which is not true. <laughs> People can still shoot you if you own the business. True. Uh, all the, the gunplay in this movie is so fucking goofy. Oh. I mean, the, like, the lines where I laughed out loud, LOL'd. To borrow a term. Sure. Someone says, someone in like the NASA brain trust is like, how bad is it going to be? And someone's like, basically the worst parts of the Bible. I was laughing. Mm -hmm. When Bruce, or no, it's it's maybe Steve Buscemi who says, man, why do you got a gun in space? Laughing. (laughs) He's got space dementia. Of course I'm laughing. And it's when when Steve Buscemi has space dementia is when he... He has this like machine gun, which they've brought to space for some reason, different from the like the handgun. Yeah, that's behind this like lock and key secret. Oh, top secret! Only use this handgun if you need to shoot the oil drillers or something. Chekhov's full ass artillery is <laughs> Chekhov's militia is in this. But they have these like enormous guns that they bring to space for what? For for the for the movie. <laughs> For the big movie, for the big scene. Yeah. Oh my God, it's so goofy. 
I, I mean, I can be mad. It's, it's to be clear, we're going to be joking around for a lot of this movie. It's a horrible movie. I mean, it's oh, like yeah. the worst. And we're not even like pushing back against really many opinions by saying that. Mm-mm. People hated it when it came out. It still sucks shit. <laughs> but, you know. But the Criterion Collection loved it. Someone held, <laughs> someone held Mr. Criterion at, you know, <laughs> Space Bazooka Point. And they're like, put it in. Who knows? And and this movie, in I think the most forced way that we've covered in a while, is about mm-hmm. fathers and sons, when it very much does not have to be. You could cut out Ben Affleck's character and just let Liv Tyler go. Yeah. But but they would never do that, and so they, they have never. to create a convoluted beep, boop, beep, boop, beep, boop, and now it's still about fathers and sons. Oh, my gosh. Unbelievable. We'll talk Anyways. all about it. So the team assembles... And they start prepping for this job and this journey through space. Fun montage. They get medical and psych evaluations. They start training for how to be in space. Billy Bob explains the plan for how they're going to go into space. Stop at a Russian space station to refuel. Then slingshot around the moon. Catch up with the asteroid from behind. Land on it. And then drill, baby, drill to 800 feet. This is the most, like, American-sounding, bizarro nonsense in the entire world. And you're just like, yeah, we're going to slingshot around the moon. Honestly, I was like, all right, I guess that's... I'm sure they're going to do it. Yeah. And they do. The Wikipedia uh, Scholarly Journal, of course, Mm -hmm. page for this movie is mostly about how a bunch of scientists have debunked (laughs) all of the, like, quote unquote, science in this movie. Sure. Well, and it also sounded like, per Affleck, Mm. that Michael Bay, because his movies are so needlessly expensive, he had a number of NASA consultants on set Mm -hmm. and just ignored them all the time (laughs) Uh so it's like not surprising at all that nothing makes sense but i also thought it was funny where we're always like you know you have to build consulting into your budget if you're going to do something you don't know (laughs) Mm -hmm. but he did and then he was just like ah shut up he's like don't (laughs) need it shut the fuck up (laughs) fires happening in fires happening in space you nasa (laughs) fucking dorks like it was (laughs) yikes yes um okay so they're going to do this whole plan. Two shuttles are going to go to the asteroid. And uh-huh. once they land... Freedom and independence. <sighs> Come on. Perfect writing. No notes. Once they land, they will have eight hours to plant the nuclear bomb and leave before it's too late and the asteroid hits the Earth. Meanwhile, AJ is like, hey, Grace, Marry me in a scene where Bruce Willis is watching them make He's out, watching like, from behind a oil rag. I don't know, like <laughs> what the set is that they're on. They're sitting in an oil contraption. He's peeking from behind a curtain, like he's Kira mm. Knightley in Pride and Prejudice, <laughs> watching them make out. And then he's like, yeah. "All right, I guess they're making out." And he walks away. And then two seconds later, Ben Affleck is like. Will you marry me? And she just smiles. And then he puts the ring on. She doesn't even say yes. She does not say yes. (laughs) Okay. So that happens. (laughs) Yes. Then we get more scenes of like training and space simulations. Now it's only like 12 days before the asteroid makes impact. Tension is high. Mm -hmm. Harry is like, hey, Billy Bob Thornton, 
you got to let these guys spend time with their families. We got to get morale up. Mm-hmm. And this is when we get the scene where Ben Affleck puts animal crackers on Liv Tyler down her pants on her boobs and it's supposed to be sexy and a lot of people felt that way and people did think that yes and this is around the time i would say that the character of grace that is established disappears goes away Mm -hmm. they did i was interested in because i mean and i do think this is like looking back at Michael Bay movies we've covered, I think this is kind of like serial behavior for his movie where I feel Mm. like he almost tries to trick you by setting up a woman at the beginning of the movie who like there's stakes to her. It seems like she might be able to do something, Mm. but then sometime early in the second act, they're like, well, but no, but that's not going to happen. She's, she's daughter and she's wife. And that's sort of how the rest of the movie goes. Right. But I was surprised at how much they established grace at the beginning right and for how little they did with her because she could speak mandarin like mm. she was like well respected at her like at the job she had all of these like well we'll, we'll talk about that in the characters actually right. but i was just like so frustrating that they're like but by the time you get to animal crackers <laughs> she's gone she's left the building yeah she's girlfriend right. forever now so the the boys are enjoying their night off meanwhile a small asteroid or several of them hit East Asia, which prompts... Including Shanghai. Shanghai, mm-hmm. which prompts Dottie, the woman married to the very verbally abusive guy, Carl. It prompts her to leak the information about the huge asteroid that's, you know, this global killer that's coming to Earth to kill everyone. Mm-hmm. She leaks this to the press. So now everyone in the world knows about this impending doom. And I will say Dottie outside of what is the name of the woman astronaut? Watts. Watts. Okay. So Dottie and Watts are neck and neck for most active women in the story. You think it's Mm going to be Grace and the movie wants you to think it's Grace, but it isn't. I would say Dottie has the most narrative impact of any woman in the story. But the least amount of screen time, oddly. Yeah. So she made a a meal of what she was given. Mm. Because if mm-hmm. she hadn't told, and I'm like, also, I was trying to put myself in her shoes. And then I was like, this movie is so convoluted. I'm going to stop thinking about this. I was like, what would I have done in Dottie's position? Because you don't want to cause mass panic, which she kind of right. does. Yeah. Which she does. But then also you don't want the world to not have the chance to make their peace and, and say they love, you know. Sure. So were I burdened with Dottie's burden? I don't know what I would do. I hope yeah. I never have to think of, I hope I never have to do that (laughs) fingers crossed (laughs) also by this time we've already gotten like a lot of like chosen one narratives with harry and it's like there's i mean you do need to think that he he is like so the protagonist because he's bruce willis like of course Mm -hmm. he's the protagonist he has he has the energy for it right but like there's all these like lines where he's like Six billion people in the world. Why me? But no one really is able to answer that question. I don't know why. <laughs> like, we simply don't know. Ben Affleck doesn't have the answer to that question. And it sounds like it really haunts him. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> okay. So Harry and AJ and the rest of the team, plus several astronauts. I think yeah. Gruber might be one of the astronauts. But even so, when they're like, we lost Gruber, I, we're still like, I think so. Who? But which of Bruce Willis's friends is that? Because Bruce Willis has like two, either two or three, yikes, I don't really know, two or three guys that have kind of like 
marine haircuts that all kind of look like the same guy and one of them is gruber i'm pretty sure no i think gruber is one no? of the like nasa guys oh. who is like not even really introduced that's another interesting thing about michael bay movies is they well actually not exclusively but there are ones that have kind of this i don't know i feel like you can view it like there's there's different ways to view it where mm-hmm. you know he's very like this movie in particular is very like pro working man and pro working mm-hmm. class and like they're very much the heroes but then you can also view it as like kind of really anti-intellectual um where mm-hmm. the nasa astronauts who logistically would know more than bruce willis who started being trained as an astronaut less than two weeks ago right they're like framed as like the villains yeah at many points they're like these losers don't know what they're doing they all die in space even though they are trained astronauts i don't know yeah i mean there's there's definitely uh it's a complex text (laughs) because i i am like working class heroes like that's that's great you know Mm -hmm. i love that but also just because your hero is a working class person doesn't mean that all scientists are also evil it just feels like maybe oversimplified anyways Uh, yeah whatever so everyone gets on the two space shuttles and they take off into space harry on one shuttle and aj on the other they stop at the russian space station to refuel where they meet lev played by peter stormare who i think is doing a Gru impression okay (laughs) thoughts okay i didn't think of that i thought because i was like clearly you know there's like some cold war hangover vibes oh oh yeah the peter stormare character and i was like but i assumed he was an american doing a russian accent he's actually swedish yes doing a russian accent Mm -hmm. anyways no matter either way it's pretty weird um it's, but sounds like Gru. yeah but Gru's a but Gru's a hero <laughs> that's implying that Gru is playing i mean i guess Gru is actually playing second fiddle to the kind means. of a lot of characters yeah he is mm-hmm. but you know you, you would never hear you know minions the rise of lev andropov you wouldn't hear that <laughs> true it's not gonna happen so true sorry so Gru, even sorry <laughs> and that's the growth so the cold Gru. hard growth <laughs> uh grew or false this <laughs> <laughs> yes i think that um steve carell was robbed he really could have he really could have shown his stuff he yeah. really, it could have been a long audition for grew true anyway so mm. lev is on the space station and he's helping them refuel but there's a leak no. and an explosion with lots of fire in space and the whole Russian space station explodes. Mm-hmm. Then they slingshot around the moon and approach the asteroid from behind. But one of the shuttles hits debris from the asteroid and loses control and crashes. We think maybe AJ died uh, back on Earth. Grace is sad because it was the shuttle that AJ was on. But it turns yes. out there are a few survivors. Mm-hmm. AJ... Mm-hmm. Lev and uh, Bear, that's Michael Clark Duncan. Um, Owen Wilson, dead. Dead. R.I.P. I guess that Michael Bay saw Bottle Rocket and it was like, mm-hmm. yeah. Let's get, get this guy. Here. That's fun. But also, I kind of forgot that he was in the movie. 
So did I. Um, meanwhile, uh-oh, the other shuttle overshot their landing by 26 miles. Yikes. And they... A full Boston Marathon. <laughs> <laughs> Just the Boston one, though. Other marathons? Different. Look, me and Ben Affleck agree. <laughs> it's... <laughs> and Aerosmith. Oh, of course. Um, yeah. So they landed on part of the asteroid that's like an iron plate, which means it's going to be very hard to drill through. I don't know how NASA knew the like elemental compounds of the different parts of the asteroid, but they knew. Was this one of the contested science points of like how would no, you No, this is it? one of my questions. I mean, maybe it was, oh. but I was like, did they send scouts to the asteroid to check it out? Like... I don't like a basketball, they... like a basketball playing teenager. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I honestly, I think I went so smooth brain on this viewing experience where I'm like, whatever Michael Bay is going to tell me about space will be wrong, mm. but I'm going to proceed as if it is true. <laughs> sure. And what, by the time they arrived and they're like, exactly. I was like, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. they're, yeah, they're <laughs> astronauts. I just, if you think about like things that take, like, what have you spent 12 days on? And how good were you at it? It's like shocking. Yeah. I have not been able to learn the, you know, steps in like one song of anything goes in 12 days. You know, like high school theater (laughs) productions don't come together that quickly. How are we saving the world? I've been learning Spanish for three years and I can still Mm -hmm. barely string a sentence together. Like it, these things take time. Well, I guess you're no Owen Wilson, <laughs> but except actually he flopped. He died. He flopped. He flopped. That's how mm. I describe people who die in a rocket accident. They flopped. <laughs> you flopped. Should try harder. Um, so it's going to be really hard to drill because they're drilling through iron. Sure. And makes sense. their machinery is breaking and they're way behind schedule with how deep they're supposed to be at this point. Sure. And Harry and the astronaut guy in charge, Colonel Sharp, played by William Fichtner. Is that how you say it? He kind of looks like um, Killian Murphy a little bit. He, yes. They have similar eyeballs. Um, yeah, big sad eyes. Uh, so he, Colonel Sharp, and Harry are screaming at each other. Mm-hmm. And if the stakes weren't high enough, mm-hmm. some gravitational space stuff happens and messes with the communication between NASA and the guys in space and they only have a few minutes left before they can detonate the nuclear bomb remotely and then they'll lose their chance. Sucker freaking blue. (laughs) So the president of the US gives an order to detonate the nuclear bomb while they still can while they still are in contact and like have the communication mm-hmm. even though the hole has only been drilled to 57 feet when they need it to be 800 and billy bob thornton's like oh no this is a horrible plan the clock on the bomb starts ticking down Liv tyler tackles somebody yeah yeah she's like that's my father up there and you're like yep that is her role at this point <laughs> in the plot um, yeah. she just has to loudly remind other people of her relationship to the men in space it's true but yeah billy bob thornton he's kind of unequivocally like he's like lawful good i feel like as the movie presents it Mm, yeah or maybe lawful neutral because he does go rogue no well i guess lawful good because he does eventually make the right decision but he needs to be talked into it Mm, yeah 
I can't remember exactly how that plays out. He's yelling at Keith David, though, and he's like, this is the fucking wrong thing to do, and you know it. Yeah. And then Keith David's like, I don't know. I love the freaking president so much. (laughs) So the clock on the bomb starts ticking down. They have five minutes to get the shuttle off the asteroid before the bomb detonates. Uh-huh. And then back on Earth, like people are stopping the countdown, they're overriding the overrides until finally Colonel Sharp on the asteroid stops the countdown so that the drillers can get the job done. Woo! <laughs> Meanwhile, AJ, Bear, and Lev are in a space vehicle called the Armadillo. They are driving to the drill site. Mm-hmm. They're like crashing around. It's chaos. The asteroid is very spiky. They're like hitting a lot of spikes. Back at the drill site, Steve Buscemi develops what I think it's Colonel Sharp calls space dementia. Mm-hmm. And then there's like, <laughs> and then there's an earthquake on the asteroid and their drill blows away into outer space. Yes. So it seems like the mission is a failure. Meanwhile, smaller bits of the asteroid are hitting Earth. Paris gets completely wiped out. Yikes. Chaos erupts on Earth. All hope is lost. Mm-hmm. But then AJ shows up in the armadillo, which has the other drill on it. They keep drilling. They get to 800 feet. But then there is a meteor shower on the asteroid. And Any questions? (laughs) And then it crashes into everybody and it damages the bomb's remote detonator, which means that someone has to stay behind to detonate the bomb. They draw straws, which they just happen to have on the space shuttle. Yeah. And... AJ draws the short one, which I only knew because everyone told me that, not because there's any clear visual information that shows that he has the short one. No, because they don't, they, they can't keep a shot on anyone for more than tw- like 0. 0.2 seconds. And Seven like, frames. <laughs> and, 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 and the music, it's so loud and so fast. And I mean, it would be kind of fun to have seen this movie in, theaters because you're just like how would you know what was going on but it has to be like consuming to not know what's happening i I do want to take a a moment to point out the rare instance where i agree with roger ebert Mm. in his review of the movie he says Mm. quote the movie is an assault on the eyes the ears (laughs) the brain the common sense and the human desire to be entertained yeah, I mean, when he when he <laughs> hit, he hit, you know. Mm-hmm. He wasn't always wrong. I thought it was funny that Siskel gave it a thumbs up, and he was like, I don't know, it's kind of fun. <laughs> right. I think that's also a, co- a completely reasonable take on this movie, too. <laughs> sure. Okay, so someone has to stay behind to detonate the bomb, and AJ has drawn the short straw, but Harry had promised Grace that he would bring back her fiance safely to earth. So don't you mean my fiance, my fiance. That's how they said it back then. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, and so Harry volunteers his tribute to be the one to stay behind and he saves AJ and he's like, 
take care of my little girl. By the way, I always thought of you as my son. And AJ is like, like, no, (gasps) daddy, I love you. Don't do this. Everyone has to scream daddy at Bruce Willis before he can, (laughs) before his spirit can be released to Christian heaven, where he clearly wants it to go. Like, it's so much. I did like, okay. One thing I, I liked about this, I don't know if this was a performance choice or it was written in the script. I have no mm-hmm. idea. Mm-hmm. But AJ, not a character I love, a character I think we should write out and replace with Grace, right? Mm-hmm. However, I will say that he is the most, you know, I feel like a lot of the male characters on this crew specifically are defined by their creepiness and emotional repression. AJ, not like that. He is not creepy. And mm-hmm. he openly expresses his emotions almost all the time. He's a pretty straight shooter when it comes to his emotions, including telling a grown man that he loves him, which is like this weird verboten thing Mm -hmm. for a lot of adult men in movies and sometimes in the world as well. So I did like that like he was openly crying when he was upset and like it was easy for him to tell Grace that he loved her, like just Mm -hmm. stuff that like, I mean, again, the bar is 800 feet inside of an asteroid, but (laughs) I did like that there was like a hero that was like, and, and Owen Wilson as well. Like Owen, like the younger guys on this crew were more in touch with their emotions Mm -hmm. and it wasn't, you know, universally positioned as like this really negative thing. I was surprised by that too, because it seems in direct contradiction to the toxic masculinity that Michael Bay layers so deeply into all of his movies. Yeah. I mean, I thought there were a few (laughs) elements of this movie that I'm like, well, I don't know who is creatively responsible for that. Cause that could have been a Ben Affleck performance choice. That Mm. could have been like one of the 900 credited writers adding it in. But yeah, there was at least one or two male characters with like basic emotional intelligence, which Mm -hmm. I don't expect in Michael Bay movies. True. So I I feel the need to point it out. Yeah. At the same time, though, when uh, Bruce Willis is like, I've always thought of you as my son, oh. even though you were shooting at him with a gun on an oil rig like 12 two weeks days ago. ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, AJ's like, Daddy, I love you. Don't do this. So even though the movie is <laughs> more about a relationship between a father and daughter, it still manages to end up being about fathers and sons. We'll get into that because I was yeah. truly, really <laughs> fucking frustrated by that. And like, I feel like sometimes it's like the movie is about fathers and sons because they don't bother to introduce a woman. It's just the absence of an alternative. Right. But in this they spend so much time introducing Liv Tyler's character. And then, you know, like the, uh, like, it reminds me of Pacific Rim, the end where, uh-huh. is it Makamori? Makamori. Yeah, she's launched out of the climax to the movie. And it mm-hmm. felt like they ha- they did that to Grace at the beginning of Act 2. They're like, you're not going to space. Yeah, I don't know why in my, I mean, I didn't have a strong memory of this. I sort of, like was hoping because of how strong her introduction was not like writing wise but like you learn a lot about her you learn that Mm -hmm. she has a difficult relationship with her father i'm like oh my god they might let her go to space it doesn't happen (laughs) no 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 because she has a lady job which is to talk to people that was a question i had when she's in (laughs) she's in houston and they have a problem 
classic Houston. Oh, famously. Ugh, get it together, right? <laughs> but is she working? Is she there in the capacity of work or is she in there in the capacity of daughter wife i don't know because all that happens is bruce willis being like yeah i'll come on your nasa mission if my daughter grace can go with me but we don't know in what capacity because we don't actually know what her job is right we just know that whatever it is she's good at it (laughs) (laughs) yes she keeps saying it right and we we agree i'm sure she is but it's like what do you mean by that oh i mean to be fair that isn't necessarily a gender specific problem in this movie. I don't know what anyone's doing. I mean, we know that the oil drillers drill oil. But we don't know why they're allowed to be astronauts. <laughs> and if you ask Michael Bay that question, he will tell you to shut the fuck up. I feel like if it was legal, he would have actually shot Ben Affleck in the leg <laughs> for running his mouth like that. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so the final thing that happens is Harry does this like video satellite call to Grace. He FaceTimes Grace and he's like He does. I love you, but sorry. He's FaceTimes Grace. <laughs> I never get a pun in. I feel good. That was incredible, Jamie. Thanks. I loved it. Um <laughs> but yeah, he's like, Grace, I love you. By the way, I'm about to die. Bye. And then the... She goes, Daddy, no! <laughs> daddy, no! Daddy, no! She and Ben Affleck get to go, no, Daddy, no. <laughs> it's true. Be serious. Yeah. Well, good for them. Um, <laughs> and then the shuttle takes off from the asteroid. Harry detonates the bomb just in the nick of time. He saves humanity. The shuttle returns to Earth. You know, everyone on board are heroes. AJ and Grace reunite and get married the and get married during the credit sequence because it's been such a long movie (laughs) but with that let's take a little break because i'm exhausted exhausted caitlin (laughs) we'll be right back bean dad the dress 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. 
comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. We're back, baby. Well, I feel like we've touched on a lot of things. Mm, and. Yes. I feel good about that. Mm-hmm. I think that we were we were right to do it. We were so good at our jobs. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But where do we begin? I would like to go back to Grace. Okay. And some of the stuff we've, like you said, touched on already. But she is there because she is the daughter and the love interest of two men who are far more important to the events and outcome of the story yeah so she's not allowed to go into space which makes sense she's not a driller and it seems like that's not what she wanted to do which is fine fair maybe she's environmentalist that maybe but then uh bruce willis would uh hit golf balls at her because there's that boat full of protesters who were like stop drilling for oil and Bruce mm-hmm. Willis is like, I'm going to throw golf balls at you. And that's supposed to be hilarious and awesome. We love that. Um, but her not going to space, as we've talked about, means that there's no chance that she can participate in this mission of saving the world. And she's just relegated to the daughter and girlfriend. And it really just exists mostly in the story to be motivation for Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck. Yeah, It's like, a, oh, I have to succeed so that I can see her again. And she's a tool to drive a wedge between them because for some reason there needs to be conflict between these two guys, which just means that she is basically a plot tool and a way to further characterize the men and is given no real characterization of her own beyond that. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that is... The biggest betrayal of the movie, because I, I mean, there's always I feel like in some Michael Bay movies, and I am thinking of like how Michaela in Transformers is set up mm-hmm. versus how what happens with your character where she is set up as a character. You may or may not like the traits she is given, sure. but she has skills. She has mm-hmm. interests. She has motivation and she has ability. The way she is shot do not quite square with that but like no there is information there that is interesting and it's mm-hmm. like makes Michaela a compelling character I feel like Grace kind of falls into that where and she isn't shot as exploitatively as later Michael Bay installments true 
yeah, I kind of wonder what the cinematography, if that's like Michael Bay brain rot or a cinematography mm. shot. I don't, I don't really know. Mm-hmm. But I will say that, you know, while her body is certainly lingered on, especially in the animal cracker scene, I feel like is the worst <laughs> offender of it. Oh, of course. Yeah. And the fact that that is a phrase in itself. But like, <laughs> for the, I feel like, you know, as opposed to other Michael Bay female characters, she is treated less horrifically. I agree. And she's set up as a really like I just can't get over like there's three whole scenes in the first half hour of this movie devoted to how complicated her relationship is with her father and her upbringing we get Mm -hmm. all kinds of information we get um, the fact that she's in this relationship that her father is like irrationally hateful towards which is like a whole whatever that trope we've discussed a million times of like if you touch my daughter I'll kill you and you know Mm. possessive father shit that's very very toxic and harmful and you know Grace reasonably saying like these are the kind of people I grew up around why would you be shocked that I would end (laughs) up with someone like this it's all I know a fair point mm-hmm. you also find out that there's some sort of resentment regarding like she hasn't been dead mommed her mom mm-hmm. left we mm-hmm. don't know why but she mm-hmm. left and mm-hmm. it seems like Liv Tyler holds on to some resentment about why her mom left which yeah. would make sense because we've only seen Bruce Willis be an asshole right so there's that we know that she doesn't really want to work on the oil rig but she does and she's very good at it and she's ready to leave and her mm-hmm. dad is desperately clinging to her, doesn't want her to leave. Like we get all this really kind of rich information. Mm-hmm. And and I'm assuming if I'm giving the movie the benefit of the doubt, the only reason she's staying is because her soon to be fiance also lives and works there. Right. Otherwise it's possible she may have already left. Mm-hmm. What is her job? Is she like a liaison between the clients who are buying the oil question mark i don't know why the business people come onto the oil rig and i don't know what bruce willis means when he threatens to send her back to quote unquote the office because great questions all around what is why does the oil rig have the office it seems like the oil rig is the office that's how what everything else implies yeah but he threatens to send her back to the office that does not make sense but even in like the fucking maze of not making sense, mm-hmm. there's a lot we learn about Grace right away. And it sets up at least a semi-cogent reason for her and her father to go on some sort of journey together. And then mm-hmm. that just doesn't happen. Mm-mm. The thing that made me most frustrated from like, I mean, from like a Bechtel cast standpoint and also a writing standpoint, because I'm just like, why would you do this like first of all it becomes clear immediately that what grace's narrative should be is offloaded to ben affleck pretty early in the movie the second she agrees to marry him Mm -hmm. the plot that belongs to grace is then uh that's the dowry that she gives to her husband is her (laughs) entire plot line yeah (laughs) and she is like severely reduced in screen time but even before bruce willis leaves for space which he does in many, I mean, in at least two movies, you know, mm-hmm. what a legend. Um, but anyways, <laughs> before he leaves, she forgives him for everything mm-hmm. to the point where I was like, then why even like, I felt like from a, like a writing standpoint that undercuts such a large chunk of the movie. Cause if she forgives him before he leaves yeah, and then she forgives him again 
before he dies, why why not just not forgive him before he leaves? Right. And then it would be more like narratively impactful, no matter what the gender dynamics are. It's just like, mm-hmm. why would you have her forgive him twice? So the whole time that he's in space, she feels the exact same way. Like she hasn't changed at all. She's just like, I love my yeah. dad. I, I'm not upset about whatever vague thing happened to my mom. And... It's all good. Like that. I was so frustrated. Right. That eliminates an opportunity for tension in that relationship. Yeah. And when you're writing a story, you want to like capitalize on opportunities for tension, not eliminate them. Number one. Number two, I thought what she was forgiving him for or like what she was angry with him for was his treatment of her as it relates to her relationship with Ben Affleck, which is this whole other thing that we hinted at, but it's the like overprotective of a daughter's chastity, a daddy being like, no, my daughter can't have sex with anyone. And you have all these scenes where she's pushing back against her dad being like, AJ is my choice, not yours. You can't tell me what to do anymore. I've been more mature than you since I was 10 years old. Like, I'm an adult. Let me live my life. And then Bruce Willis literally says kind of an iconic line. He says, sure, I may be an immature father, but I'm also your employer. I was like, do you hear yourself talk? Like, that is what I guess that that is what Roger Ebert is talking about, where you're just like, you're just like your brain cells are dying as you're hearing it Mm. because I'm supposed to believe someone said that out loud. And they're like, yeah. Oh, I'm a terrible father. Well, guess what? I'm your boss, too. So take that. It's funny. Um, but, you know, horrible. Horrible. And then there's another scene. Because this, this becomes the, like, conflict between them. Or, the like, the source of tension in this father-daughter relationship. Sure. Where he has this arc where he needs to accept that his daughter is an adult with her own life but before he gets there and and accepts this Mm. which he i feel like accepts this to aj and not even to her because he's like yeah you're my son i've always thought of you as my son and it's like no you need to be having a conversation with grace about this anyway it's really frustrating it's like it's (laughs) total horseshit like the way that yeah like her plot and I mean I do wonder it it would be probably impossible to actually trace but just to like know at what point like I I am convinced that there is a version of this script that Grace went to space in you know Mm. I just I mean could be again there, there are many credited writers and then many others who weren't credited there was something like nine yeah nine writers total including uh, yeah. Credited ones are Jonathan Hensley, J.J. Abrams. There's also story by credits that include Robert Roy Poole. Mm-hmm. There's adaptation credits. I don't even know what they're adapting, but um, Tony Gilroy, who I'm a huge fan of, Mr. Andor. I mean, yeah, no, Tony, Tony Gilroy is amazing. It's um, almost rude that he, <laughs> that he he's implicated this. in this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and then Shane Salerno and then uncredited writers include a guy named Paul, a woman named Anne. Okay. Anne Biderman, 
we've got Scott Rosenberg and Robert Town. So a whole slew of people working on this project. And, and Robert Town's very famous. Yeah. <laughs> very famous, right. No, you can't blame any one person for what's happening here. I feel like, honestly, Michael Bay is kind of probably the most likely culprit for things mm-hmm. that we don't like. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. It also sounds like he lets actors do a lot of improv in his movies, too. So there's a lot of lines in this movie where they're, where they're like, that was Bruce. And you're like, well, I guess that that's Bruce Willis's uh, fault. I, and you know, <laughs> right. it's, but I what they don't tell you about the Bruckheimer teeth is that, you know, they're kind of like what's the test they they've passed the, the sentient they're like sentient as humans and so they can make ben affleck oh, say the turing things. test yeah the the bruckheimer teeth have passed the turing test and <laughs> so the bruckheimer teeth can just make ben affleck say literally whatever wow. whatever they want yeah that'll come mm-hmm. out in his voice and <laughs> that's, that's the, the teeth they're like you know they're rooted into your mouth and then just kind of wired Shh. directly oh. to your brain wow yeah, That's, they cost twenty thousand dollars. I mean, they of course they're are, equipped with AI. The Turing teeth. <laughs> um, <laughs> wow, Jamie, you're on a roll. Um, Thank you. Anyway, so Harry's arc, as it relates to Grace, is all about oh, he has to accept that his daughter is an adult. There's a scene where, and this happens after Harry has seen AJ and Grace kiss like right before aj proposes Mm -hmm. and it makes harry mad that his daughter is in love and there is one of the wildest exchanges of dialogue in a movie that i have ever seen i just want to go quickly through this where harry's very pissed off steve buscemi is like look grace is an adult she can make her own choices she grew up to be a hottie and then Another guy chimes in and is like, yeah, she's so freaking hot. And then Owen Wilson is like, look, she's a kid coming into her own. She's exploring her sexuality. She's getting curious about her body. Her hormones are pulling her in a thousand different directions. Talking about her as if she's a teenager. When when (laughs) it's stated just after that, that they're the same age. And then, and then Bear... Bear kind of put put the pin on everything by saying yeah so i mean it's like it's almost as if bear has not listened to the entire conversation (laughs) because he puts a pin in the conversation by saying yeah i think we can all agree that we all feel like we are her father and i'm like but they were just saying really disgusting things about her for a whole minute bear were you listening he says and i quote we all feel like a bunch of daddies yeah they do say that they do say that, and we and then have no say in that. <laughs> we, we can't do anything about it now. Um, so, yeah, it's like, she's so hot. She's so hot. What a certified hottie. Bear is like, and we are her daddy also. And yeah. then... He's like, because we're hitting on her, we are her... <laughs> no, but that's not the cause and effect he's describing, but it's like... Right shocking that he could hear that whole conversation and be like yes we all have paternal feelings towards this young woman (laughs) truly like and and then harry goes on a pretty classist tirade where he's like i'm not gonna let my daughter marry some roughneck she's better than that she's better than all of us well see that didn't bother me as much because that felt like a because you know because we know where the story goes like that was one of the more effective things for me mm. because 
his mind does change about that where I feel like sure there are these like generational anxieties of like I don't want my kid to end up with someone who reminds me of myself because mm-hmm. I hate myself and I want whatever like the generation like I want my kid to do better than I yeah. did so mm-hmm. that didn't super bother me as like I don't think that he was an inherently classist character because he was advocating for the men he'd worked with forever who were of the same class as him mm-hmm. the whole movie but I just I, I felt like that was something that he came around on so that felt like one of the only elements of Harry's character that grew not that grew anyways uh, <laughs> <laughs> not oh. that I lo- I don't like that like him I think that it should have been Harry learning to accept his daughter as an autonomous person who Mm -hmm. wanted to do her own thing and like there's so many ways you could take that it's like maybe like Liv Tyler wants to like work for NASA or work as something that he considers to be elitist and he's like why Mm -hmm. you're like abandoning your roots fuck you and then they go on this space mission together and he's like all right I accept that you want to do something different than me but it's Mm -hmm. still like we still love each other and whatever do it that way there's a million different ways to do it but because it goes that way I don't know I didn't I didn't mind that Mm -hmm. because he comes around on it and I feel like he was more just like projecting of like I don't want my daughter to marry someone like me because I suck and it's like (laughs) well yeah you do suck you do but Ben Affleck knows how to cry and say I love you which you don't so (laughs) he is better than you yeah um any other thoughts on grace um no it was just a big disappointment i i I didn't like how she was reduced to stakes for men Mm -hmm. literally a like physical stake and movie stakes for Mm -hmm. the two main guys when she was because it I, i don't know it always just feels like a knife twist to even bother to set up a character if you're just gonna do that yeah so i was disappointed Yes. And I wish that Liv Tyler had gotten to do more because I like her. Mm-hmm. And that's all I have to say. I want to talk about Dottie and Watts. Yeah. A quick but powerful <laughs> conversation because she's, I think, yeah. the first woman we really meet in the movie. Dottie? Yes. Yes. Dottie is played by Grace Zabriskie, mm-hmm. who I need to look her up. Um because when I was like talking about when I was like posting Instagram stories about Armageddon, everyone's like, "I love Grace Zabritsky." Oh, really? But um, I was like, I don't know who that is. Um, anyway, so she is married to Carl, who in a number of scenes is extremely verbally and emotionally abusive to Dottie, which in true Michael Bay fashion, is played as a joke. Sure. I, like, hesitate to even quote this because it's so horrible, but there's this scene where... It (laughs) happened. There's a scene where Carl is on the phone with Billy Bob, and he's like, I discovered the asteroid, so I want to name it. And Billy Bob's like, okay. He's like, I want to name it after my wife, Dottie. Because she's a vicious, life-sucking bitch from which there is no escape. And then he's, like, smiling. Michael Bay wants you to go, ha, 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 ha. Because that's how he feels about women. Women. And we know this. And there's proof. So, yeah, I don't love that. Uh, However, I think that we cannot hold 
how Dottie's spiteful, evil jackass of a husband talks about her against Dottie herself. Because I like Dottie. I think Mm. she is the most impactful woman in the plot. And I hate how the movie wants us to see her because I want to see her a different way. Mm -hmm. She comes out. She only speaks. I think that it does speak to the actor because she only speaks in really like hack gendered tropes. But the Mm. actor does sell it as if like there's like a deep resentment under it. Mm -hmm. Because you could just walk out and say those lines like, Carl, I made dinner 10 hours ago. Where are you? But she says it with like a fury. Yeah. You know, and then she says, do I have a sign on me that says Carl's slave? Like she really is Mm -hmm. like, in my head, Dottie is trapped in this marriage for whatever reason. She's going to have an asteroid named after her. And then she's going to divorce him, take all of his weird FBI money and um, kill him. Mm, Yes, I like that for her. I don't think the script is thinking that hard about it. But I do appreciate when it's like there's an underwritten woman in a movie which Dottie very much is Mm -hmm. and an actor manages to make it feel impactful in like a memorable way because Michael Bay is like not going to give you fucking anything ever because he's evil he is evil and then the final Dottie related scene which happens off screen but Mm -hmm. someone I don't know if it's Billy Bob receives a text message on his Nokia phone from 1998 um (laughs) that Dottie leaked the info about the asteroid to the press. Yeah. It's not clear why she does this, why she leaks the info, because the movie doesn't care enough to check back in with her and show us her motivation for doing that. But I feel like what we're supposed to think in the movie is that she did it out of spite. Which is maybe ridiculous. Like to spite her husband? I don't know. And there's, there's another woman that I don't think we ever get a name for. And I honestly could not figure out which guy it was. It's the guy that shouldn't be near his son, but is. Oh, his name is Chick. Fine. <laughs> I felt like, I mean, Chick's wife, who we never get a name for. Mm-mm. She doesn't have the same emotional impact or screen time or you know, whatever that, that Dottie does. But that's another woman who's sort of presented to us as like, she's, you know, oh, this guy's made mistakes in his past. Why won't she f- just forgive him? Mm-hmm. You know, and because he comes to the house, apparently illegally, because she tells yep. him, you're not supposed to be here. You're not supposed to have contact, which probably means there's some sort of like restraining order situation going on mm-hmm. as well. But she still like comes around and is very, like we cut back to her two more times. The first time is when she finds out he is the space cowboy hero. And she's like, that's your daddy and it's like (sighs) and then she's like let's get back together and i'm like well hold on what did he do that you broke up with him like Mm -hmm. what did he do going to space with bruce willis will not solve your relationship and i've always said that that doesn't redeem your broken marriage yeah that was frustrating Mm -hmm. and then there's watts the one lady astronaut played by jessica steen Uh we really know nothing about her aside from her being an astronaut Mm -hmm. Um, the way the men talk about her is one of the few like focal points she gets before they like land on the asteroid and start drilling but there's a scene when they're still on earth and she's like explaining gravity (laughs) to the oil drillers 
Mm-hmm. They're not paying attention. And Owen Wilson is like, is it just me or is Watts really hot? And then a few of the guys go like, oh, yeah, she is. Which is wild because you never learn anything about her. She disappears for large swaths of the movie. I thought mm-hmm. that she had died at one point. I was like, oh, she must have been on the independence because I haven't seen her in a half hour. So I guess RIP. But like she didn't even die. They just forgot about her. They just forgot about her until one scene toward the end where they have drilled the hole. They have planted the nuclear bomb. They are trying to take back off in the shuttle, but the engine won't fire up and she's trying to fix it. She's running around. She cannot fix it. Then Lev He's like, I'll do it. He shoves her out of the way. Yep. Hits something with a wrench or whatever. A character that... who's introduced after her. I'm like, yeah, stop. <laughs> that somehow fixes the problem. So basically the one chance the movie had to let a woman do something, the movie didn't let her do it. It makes her seem incompetent and bad at her job, has her be violently shoved out of the way by a man, yeah. and it's a man who fixes the problem by bashing a, an expensive piece of equipment with a metal pipe and saves the day. We don't know. We don't know why so this is happening in this fashion, but it is, and it feels bad to look at. Like, it is. Yeah, I was, I was quite frustrated. I feel like every time there is an opportunity to further develop a woman introduced into the story, the story instead mm-hmm. introduces three more men. And you're <laughs> yes. And that happens almost without fail because I think with Grace, we get to know Grace like I mean, I guess we do meet AJ before we meet Grace. But like Grace is introduced as like a big character. She's so large on the poster for Armageddon that you think that she's doing much more than she actually does. Right. But then Everything that is interesting about her is weirdly transferred in a way that doesn't quite translate onto AJ. And Mm -hmm. then with, what's her name? Watts. Watts. With Watts, you see like she's, I mean, I feel like she's kind of, she's not quite like a shrew stereotype, Mm -hmm. but she's very like strict. She's very like no bullshit um, in the way that I think professional women are often broadly characterized. And it's like, Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, women who are good at their job can also be fun to be around. Not that you'd know it from watching a movie, but whatever. <laughs> right. um, but she's, you know, whatever. She's like a type A, like doesn't have patience for these guys. Mm-hmm. That makes logical sense. They suck. Mm-hmm. But instead she has of to teach like, them about gravity, she's the only scientist. There's a, a <laughs> bunch of like random. I mean, you've got like someone who is rumored to hang out with underage women and a creep Mm. and a bunch of other guys that don't know anything about space. Like I, I too would be frustrated, Yeah. but instead of exploring that even remotely, instead of even bothering to build a relationship between her and anybody, we build out Lev instead because Mm -hmm. reasons like Lev is a far more memorable character than she is. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't need to be that way. I don't think it's like a fault of performance. It's it's like, that's what the script does. Yeah. So I don't know. I feel like I I'm curious, I guess if that is something that is like, it feels like a blend of this wave of representation of women and just a blend of like how Michael Bay 
is as oh, a yeah. creator. I feel like there's definitely overlap, but I do think that in the late nineties, you could really easily get away with like early third wave girl power feminism of like in the corporate sense of like having women say all the right things, but ultimately do nothing, which I think that like Grace says a lot of the right things in the first 30 minutes of this movie. She says like, you're not in charge of my life. I want to be liberated from you. Like, fuck you, all this stuff. But then the right choice is to be daughter to daddy. And Mm -hmm. I mean, and like Watts says a lot of the same things where she pushes back on these ridiculous men she's surrounded by, but you know, ultimately it doesn't mean anything in the story. Absolutely. Um, real quick. Yeah. We've touched on some of these already, but there is, as Michael Bay does, Mm -hmm. which is to treat things like racism, sexism, ableism, etc mm-hmm. as a punchline um many examples i won't even go through specific ones but there's a handful of racist stereotypes being employed there's which he did not learn from after this movie which we talked about in our transformers episode he keeps doing it there's yep. ableist language there is like we mentioned the like what is intended to be a joke of the Steve Buscemi character being a statutory rapist there is what I felt were some like gay panic jokes when with the butt shots right they were like being medically examined and there was all these like we're gonna stick this probe in you and they're like what just fucking ridiculous like you're just like grow up don't forget the woman in the cab at the beginning of the movie who is like why aren't we moving i want to go shopping because yeah women be shopping well and then on on top of that i mean like yeah michael bay is so i mean i feel like this kind of ties into the undercurrent of nationalism and like by that i mean Mm. like white american nationalism that is like tied into this movie because in all michael bay movies because he loves a disaster movie Mm -hmm. and i don't hate a disaster movie but the tropes that he invokes inside of them are like really frustrating because he Mm -hmm. like i feel like there's like the veneer veneers Ben Affleck's (laughs) okay there's the veneer of like being like an international global multicultural movie because you do see a lot of people of a lot of different races in this movie and a lot of Michael Bay movies. However, non-white characters in general, with some exceptions, but in Mm -hmm. this movie, I would mainly just say the general and bear are exceptions. Yeah. Those are really the only non-white characters of narrative impact in the movie but mm-hmm. like you see scenes that are supposed to be taking place in shanghai you see scenes that are supposed to be taking place mm-hmm. like all over the world but michael bay without fail will show you and he he michael bay does show you a very diverse new york but only because he's about to hit it with a fucking asteroid mm-hmm. and like he will show you you know people of color but he will not develop like just I, I just feel like his movies treat anyone who isn't white as extremely disposable and so it's like For you can't sure. like you can hand nothing to him because he's about to fucking blow people up like mm-hmm. it's 
without fail, he will do that. He does it in the Transformers movies. He does it in The Rock. He does it in this movie. He does it all the fucking time. Like, it's what he does. I also feel like when he cuts to other cities across the globe, and I'm thinking particularly of the shots of Shanghai. They look like they're a fucking Epcot. They like, look, it looks like it looks like, like not real. It looks yeah, the production design of those scenes, you would never know that Shanghai is a modern city. Right. Because the way that it's designed, it looks I don't know, it, it, Fake. it's like yeah, it's like Michael Bay being like it's still feudal times in China, right? It's not a modern country with a modern economy. Of course not. Which is pretty hilarious given how dependent the global movie economy is on the Chinese movie economy now. That would absolutely not happen now. Not that it should have happened then, but it's like it would be logistically impossible to happen Mm now. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just like, I mean, it's disrespectful. I feel like it's it's so USA-centric. And because it's like half the time when you hear or half the time when you see, sorry, when you see other countries, so not always non-white people, but like Mm -hmm. often, whatever. It's like, I think you're supposed to believe you go to Africa, you go to South America, you go to Asia, you go all over the world, Mm -hmm. listening to people being inspired by the American president. Mm. And then the last shot is always like a white family or Liv Tyler, like (laughs) standing up against an American flag and like nodding their head. Like it's very, very clear Mm -hmm. what's being done. It's like a low simmering propaganda and that's why you know like it's part of why the movies get made at the like at least at this point in the late 90s like that was a great way to make a really expensive movie like that was how you made a shitload of money is just adding Mm -hmm. in this you know a lot of nationalistic stuff and like a lot of it is in the imagery and like who fucking knows if that's in the script Mm -hmm. a lot of it is kind of the Bruce Willis cowboy image where right. it feels kind of very American dreamy that like it's just a regular guy, a regular American guy saved the world. And then even at the end when they blow up the asteroid, they do that whole sequence again of people all over the world of all races, creeds and genders mm-hmm. celebrating the heroism of Bruce Willis <laughs> cut to the American flag, cut mm-hmm. to a kid holding a spaceship in front of a mural of JFK. And it's like, yeah, we fucking get it. Get like, it. it's no surprise that this director goes on to work closely with the American military to make his shitty robot mm-hmm. movies. Also, they're constantly, like, as the movie goes on, they are just more and more invoking a Christian god. And you're like, oh, fucking K, man. Oh, <laughs> sorry. I just, <laughs> pernicious nationalism in movies is a very interesting topic to me. Mm-hmm. Everyone should read the book Red Carpet. Um, okay yeah yeah we talked about this on i want to say the arrival episode which is on the matreon and i think we might have Mm -hmm. discussed this to some extent on the independence day episode two Mm -hmm. the phenomenon of hollywood disaster movies where a disaster happens that would affect the entire planet but will be a story only told from the American perspective where we see Americans are the ones to do the thing to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. The implication being only Americans are smart enough and equipped enough to handle something like this, 
to the point where in this movie, they do have contact with someone from another country, Lev, on the Russian space station, but the Russian space station has this huge malfunction. Things go horribly wrong. People almost die. Right. And it's like, hey, if you needed a reminder that Russia lost the space race. And you're... Remember? Well, here's a Swedish guy doing a weird accent to remind you of that. (laughs) Impersonating Gru. (laughs) I mean, it literally... I mean, it is... It is propaganda. Like, it absolutely is propaganda. And it's not subtle. And that's why I think Michael Bay for a period of time and not anymore, which I don't think is a coincidence given the shift in global politics, like why he was such a successful international American filmmaker when he was, because it was Mm. intense American propaganda at a time where that worked. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't have, but it did. Mm -hmm. And that's, I, I need to find the name of the author because it really is. It was like one of the best books I read last year. And I know we don't read books, but I actually, I was going to say, Jamie, have you betrayed me? Here's the thing. I do actually read books all the fucking time. And sometimes I'm like, why am I joking uh, around so much? (laughs) Because then people are like, oh, you uh, have one brain cell. I'm like, I actually don't. But okay. Um, it's a book <laughs> called Red Carpet, Hollywood, China, and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy. Came out last year by mm. Eric Schwartzel. Mm-hmm. I think I brought it up. I think I maybe yeah. brought it up in our um, Top Gun episode, which is, I think, mm-hmm. over on our Matreon. Yes. But it's a really interesting book about how kind of the cultural capital has, over a period of years, shifted from... Hollywood over to China and Mm -hmm. how you know how global politics kind of influenced that but Mm -hmm. I feel like these late 90s movies are kind of where Hollywood influence is at I don't know if it's like a complete peak but certainly like a high Mm -hmm. of like pushing aggressive white American values was a way to become really really successful in a way that already feels very very dated for sure and that's why we talked about it in the top gun episode because in top gun it's so Mm pro-america and there's a very clear like they name quote-unquote the enemy in a way that no longer happens in american movies because including in top gun maverick where they're like right right, there's an enemy we're not going to tell you where it is or who it is but there's an enemy because america is no longer the most powerful country (laughs) in the world you can't just randomly name an enemy Mm -hmm. and not experience a consequence and anyways it's a really fascinating book it's very depressing but in that book oh that's what I was gonna say in that book there was a high up official I don't remember what their name or position was but there was a high up official in the um, Chinese communist government Mm -hmm. and normally I say communist as a compliment in this case I would not Mm -hmm. Um, but there was a higher up in in the government that said like a lot of current blockbuster Chinese movies. Mm-hmm. So like Michael Bay movies of the late nineties, there's a lot of heavy nationalist themes, mm-hmm. whether the movie is good or not, you know, it's like, yeah, it depends on the artist, but there, the, the nationalism is inherent to it. But um, a lot of current Chinese filmmakers were influenced heavily by this era in American movies mm-hmm. because of how heavily, the Michael Bay's of the world and everyone points out Titanic as like the best American propaganda ever produced. But are they wrong? Because it is the best. 
they're not wrong because we like it like it's and everyone likes it and that's like i mean that's the most effective propaganda it's like to build in the pernicious values that you're trying to push on people mm-hmm. in a really appealing sexy fun narratively fun is, way like it makes it a really effective way to deliver a message but but I mean, I, it's just I think it is kind of funny with movies like Armageddon because Michael Bay, I think, is trying to do that. But he's just like not good at it because <laughs> he sucks. Like, he's bad at it. He's like not a good movie maker. He's he's not a good Windows movie maker. And I don't I think he wants to be able to do what James Cameron did, but he just like can't. So he he ha ha, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um. I will say maybe the one redeeming thing about this movie that I don't think actually ends up being very redeeming because of the different context and implications. But I do appreciate that this is a movie that like champions the working class. It champions, you know, blue collar work. It's these, but then it's also, like you said, it's kind of like, well, these fancy astronaut boys can't do the job, so you need a statutory rapist, right? You know, and oil drillers who are actively fucking up the planet. We need them to come in and save the day. And they're like actively implying that these, like, I, I think that it's like you have working class heroes, and they are like not well written, but like entertainingly written characters. They're distinguishable from one another. <laughs> which That's... a lot of movies cannot do, right? Uh-huh. And you have a creep and a statutory rapist in a group of like eight guys. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Great. But I do think that all of those men are characterized as kind of buffoons. And I so it's well, like yeah. it's a like yay, we ha- ex- everyone except for Bruce Willis is like, well, the working class they're incompetent but like they really pulled it together this one time in space due to the one guy who was smart which is wild because it's like steve buscemi's character is eventually revealed to be like a extremely genius, like a prodigy um, high educated he has like two doctorates by the time he was 22 or like whatever that bizarro right. writing thing was and you know i feel like they're heavily like i i don't even know what they were doing with that character but i didn't like it I didn't no like it. I hope he made idea. all $140 million of the budget for saying those things out loud because didn't like him. But yeah, to, to your point, it's this movie that's like championing these working class people who are characterized largely in stereotypes of working class people Yeah, because they are characterized as being sex offenders and deadbeat dads and like people with gambling addictions and like all this stuff mm-hmm. so it's like you're not championing working class people if you're just applying all these negative stereotypes to them no so that doesn't work <laughs> yeah no it's like it's the classic like michael bay trying to have it all sorts of ways at once mm-hmm. which i think yeah again like gives you like the sheen of well i represented this class not well and that's how i would say that like that's how he treats people across the gender and race spectrum as Mm -hmm. well of like yeah i did represent people from across the gender and race spectrum in most of my movies not well Mm -hmm. but were they not there and you're like yeah that's actually not that's not not helpful Uh, it's not helpful at all yeah and i guess that's what i have to say about it i i do think it's funny that 
Michael Bay was at least advertised as apologizing for Armageddon. He didn't actually apologize for it, but he said, yeah, it was made pretty quickly. And my visual effects supervisor had a mental breakdown. Mm. Can I share a few of the quotes from, and can we swap our favorite quotes from the commentary track? Yes. Okay. I mean, first, iconically, Michael Bay. I know there's no fire in space, but it is a movie. And most people don't know that. (laughs) That is Mm. a good one. Mm -hmm. And he's not wrong. Most people probably don't know that here's another fun one i was very unimpressed when i went to nasa and it shows michael bay said that yes he did (laughs) (laughs) he was Um, not he was like wait there's no fires in space boo we got to put him there here's one from ben affleck Uh uh-huh talking about a scene i don't know which one i think it was a big action set piece he says Mm -hmm. quote it cuts together pretty seamlessly, I must say, for something that I thought would look like total hokum. <laughs> he says, "Okay, boomer." Um, there. <laughs> af- after remembering how chintzy it seemed on set, um, a lot of boomer words to kind of paraphrase David Sims, uh, Palavars from Blank Check, who hey, wrote an Atlantic hey. piece on the Armageddon commentary. So shout out to that yay david let's see okay two other michael bay things i'll say he says making films is like a war i think we've referenced that quote before Mm. he says i'm the kind of director who doesn't like effects he says over a sequence of terrible effects um (laughs) (laughs) and then finally i wanted to just provide the full ben affleck teeth anecdote because as a veneers scout and and you know enthusiast of many years i truly it is my dream that someday Jerry Bruckheimer will walk up to me and say, it's your time, kid. We're getting you new teeth. So I say this with love. Mm-hmm. This is Michael Bay describing how he realized Ben Affleck's teeth wouldn't do. <laughs> I always like low shots that kind of come right under your chin and make you a little bit heroic. And he kind of had these baby teeth. So I told Jerry Bruckheimer, God, he's got these baby teeth, Jerry. I don't know what to do. Jerry used a very famous star in a plane movie that he replaced teeth with. So he said, we did it to him. Why not do it to Ben? So my dentist had Ben sitting in a dentist chair for a week, eight hours a day. Oh, my gosh. And what they're talking about is Top Gun and Tom Cruise. But for some reason, Michael (laughs) Bay doesn't feel comfortable saying that. But like I've seen the before and after Tom Cruise teeth pics. Tom Cruise Uh is a poster boy for dentists that want to give you expensive teeth. Ben mm. Affleck, I kind of wonder as a veneers enthusiast, like how long do they hold up? Do you have to get them like tuned up like a car? I don't know. I but don't they know. still, you know, it's been 25 years since this movie came out and they're fucking chilling. They're they you know, they he's, seem firm. They've lasted a few marriages, <laughs> I'll say. Um true. So, you know, this movie definitely sucks. <laughs> And also, I just the last production note is that um, that I thought was funny and is like I guess a pretty well circulated thing was I just always think it's funny when like movies with the exact same themes come out at the exact same time because mm-hmm. this movie came out very very close to the movie Deep Impact, right? Which was I believe yeah directed by a woman. And was also successful, but made less mm-hmm. money than Armageddon. Hmm. And sharing from scholarly journal Wikipedia, oh, these movies please. came out two months apart. 
<laughs> they're both about blowing up an asteroid that's about to hit Earth. It's not a coincidence that they come out around the same time. Uh, it says, mm-hmm. according to Bruce Joel Rubin, writer of Deep Impact, a production president at Disney took notes on everything the writer said during a lunch about his script and initiated Armageddon as a counter film at Disney. And then nine writers, that's why nine writers worked on the script because the story had mm-hmm. basically been written by another person and they just had to kind of shape the same story into a Bruce Willis, Jerry Bruckheimer, Michael Bay vehicle of that story. And so then they just better at the box office than deep impact so they just straight up stole the idea from another writer yeah took it to a different studio and was like this is our movie now yeah and they took and like to add insult to injury deep impact was directed by a woman and very few movies in 1998 were directed by women and Mm -hmm. (laughs) just like Michael Bay just like is <sighs> fucking evil and lawless, Yuck. which we knew I've not seen. And I will say I have not. I mean, I guess I hadn't seen Armageddon either, but like I kind of forgot that Deep Impact existed. I knew Armageddon existed and that's mm. bad. It reminds me of this is the last thing I'll say in the episode because we got to go. We got to go. It reminds me. I mean, those stories, movies are like littered with stories like that. But there was this amazing animator named Richard mm-hmm. Williams who was the animation director on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. He did all of these mm-hmm. famous like animations in like the back half of the 20th century. And his magnum opus was this story called The Thief and the Cobbler, which mm-hmm. bears a lot of resemblances mm-hmm. in story and in setting to Aladdin. Right. He worked on this movie for I this. decades and decades. And then Disney got wind of it in the last couple of years. And they're like, oh, let's kill that. And then they made Aladdin. And no one has ever seen The Thief and the Cobbler. And Mm-mm. everyone has seen Aladdin. Business is evil. Kind of like how Disney was like, oh, Kimba the White Lion exists. Well, we're just going to steal that and make the Lion King. I've heard a lot of different versions of that story. But yeah, like it, it does feel like it's like the same spirit of just like, Let's steal that. Say it was 100% our, our idea in a way that we don't need to pay anyone or credit anyone and then make billions of dollars forever. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we love that. that. Awesome. So does this pass the Bechdel test, Caitlin? <sighs> no. No. <laughs> Women aren't in the same room together. That's illegal. Yeah. No, that would be nasty. And I'm glad they didn't do it. <laughs> Yeah, no, like not even fucking close. I, don't, I truly don't think we got two women in the same room. Mm-mm. In a two Are we and gonna, a half hour movie. It's obscenely long. Are we going to cover that movie, Women Talking? What? Because. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that would be a fun Matreon <laughs> thing. I would love to cover Women Talking and The Women. Okay. As a theme, because those are both movies that I think are... It sounds like, you know, whatever, released 80 years apart, but similar premises. As far as I understand, I haven't mm. done a ton of research on women talking. Anyway, that was just a sidebar. What about our nipple scale in which we evaluate the movie on a scale of zero to five nipples based on how it fares from an intersectional feminist lens? I will give this movie zero nipples. Yeah, I cannot in good conscience give it more than nothing. Um, <laughs> I won't give it negative. Because mm, we have done that before. Yeah. I think maybe even for Michael Bay movies. Yeah. I mean, this is, I will say this is not the worst Michael Bay movie I've seen by a long shot. Um, 
Mm. It's one of the better Michael Bay movies I've seen. And it's so bad. And it sucks. Um, <laughs> and it fucking sucks. But um, I, I, I think in terms of visual language, the movie does not aggressively objectify the women who are in the story it just simply elects to ignore them Mm -hmm. and turn them into wives and daughters whoops i don't like this movie (laughs) but there were parts of it that i was like well i had to watch this movie and it wasn't the worst thing that ever happened to me and that's brave i mean it does end on a high note and by that i mean it ends i could stay (laughs) away just Just to hear you anyway so you're in it those across the board uh hey thanks for listening listeners yeah thank you for listening this is uh this was a main feed episode but if you enjoyed episodes with just the two of us we do this all the time over on the patreon aka matreon that's patreon.com slash bechtelcast five dollars a month we'll get you two additional episodes from the two of us a month we usually do fun themes just like the uh women talking theme we just discussed (laughs) can't wait and uh, you can also go to tpublic.com slash the Bechtelcast for all of your merchandising needs, mm-hmm. such as new designs designed by a one Jamie Loftus, Wee. like Shrekian, Feminist Icon Paddington, and the Flubber Mambo by Danny Elfman, among Wee. all the classics such as Feminist Icon, Queer Icon, Wet Scabs, Dry Scabs, you name it, we got it. We've absolutely got it and with that uh we hope you enjoyed this we we uh wanted to kind of stray into a genre we hadn't been in for a while mm. and with but the director you know what? We pretu- what we'll be back with another episode on titanic in a couple weeks so you're gonna tell them that oh my gosh should we not i don't know i'll cut it fine <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, thank you for listening. We we love you, and we'll be back next week with your normally scheduled programming. Yeah. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week, we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. 
And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.